Welcome to a Whirly Bear Productions podcast with me, Amber Williams. We explore film finance and distribution, featuring insights from filmmakers, entertainment lawyers, and industry experts. In this episode, we feature David Keating, an award-winning filmmaker renowned for his critically acclaimed features like The Last of the High Kings and Wakewood. David extends his expertise beyond filmmaking as a respected lecturer at the National Film School, Ireland. His role as a seasoned trainer involves conducting workshops for BAFTA, BFI, Screen Ireland and Directors UK. Embracing the evolution of storytelling, David has recently ventured into the realms of virtual reality and extended reality. Today, David shares invaluable advice on pitching for filmmakers. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Can you tell us a bit about your career so far? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm Irish. Grew up here in Ireland and was passionate about photography and uh, theatre. I suppose, and when I was a, kind of a kid, but that led me to somehow, you know, photography and theatre led me to film, and I fell in love with film. I started working as a runner in the what was the National uh, Film Studios, uh, Ardmore Studios, and, and as a runner when I was sixteen. Uh, I did finish school um, and then by the, uh, you know, I had sort of summer jobs and sort of trying to help uh, carry camera equipment. Of course, the, you know, uh, quite often uh, crews are very good at doing stuff themselves, but I just, so I just got on the way, but I was, I was kind of around documentary filmmaking as a kid um, a little bit um, from people I knew. And then I worked as a, as a production runner on a feature film out of Pinewood shooting in the west of Ireland and subsequently you know that got me a union ticket as a, a training assistant director after sort of working my way up through the grades as an as an AD in Ireland I moved in to to uh, London in my early 20s and worked for directors um, like Tony Scott and uh, Michael Radford on and off being mentored by the English director uh, John Borman who was Irish, based in Ireland, uh, and who was re- really wonderful to me and extremely encouraging. I, I, I sort of transitioned from being a film technician, uh, working as a as an assistant director, into to making factual programs for First Channel Four and then the Irish Television Channel. And I got kind of tired of doing that. I wasn't doing stuff that I really wanted to do, and I my sort of. Uh, career switched over to 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 screenwriting I, I had just I I, I uh, had a director's showreel uh, as, a, as a kind of TV maker and and went to Los Angeles pretty confident that my director's reel was not good enough to get me any work and I was absolutely right and uh, I, I I couldn't couldn't get a break doing anything um, but I did take the time to write a screenplay and that got me an agent there and I wound up having an adventure as a screenwriter for for a chunk of 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 years which was really exciting working in 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 Los Angeles and back in London and back in Ireland and eventually I attached myself to one of my scripts and that was how I got to direct uh, uh, a number of feature films and tv drama I've always been in well I've I've always been interested in how we learn things and how we progress, and um, that led me. I guess the the Screen Ireland, which is the state agency in Ireland, asked me to put together some training for them, 
And I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, and then I subsequently, I got involved with the National Film School in Ireland, where I, I lecture in, in, I work with the directors uh, primarily, but, but with some of the others. And on, you know, training for Directors UK and that the uh, very excellent guild in, in Britain for directors and BAFTA. Next month, I am shooting my first XR piece, uh, VR piece, uh, which is uh, exciting and scary. So <laughs> that's a, a, a sort of speedboat trip through my career. Brilliant. That's really interesting. It's very varied. <laughs> uh, yes, I've done lots of other things like, you know, <laughs> camera gripping and uh, um, for, uh, assistant editing and things like that too thrown in. So I am, I, it's a, uh, there's, there's all sorts of bits of the film industry that um, confuse and bemuse me. But when it comes to physical production, um, it, it's very familiar to me. Um, I also spent a period of a year in there, actually in my late teens, training in physical theater in Paris. So when I got to start working with actors and subsequently directed some theater, that is probably the thing that excites me the most is working with actors and working on performance. Was that after um, you did screenwriting? Do you feel like working with actors in the theatre helped with your screenwriting? I actually stu studied physical theatre uh, really as a sort of break in my kind of film trajectory. It was right after school and um, then moved back into working as a technician because um, I realised I was never going to be um, a great performer. But the stuff I learned then, I, I think I'm still using actually, uh, when I work with actors. Theatre work that I've done, I did after I directed my first feature film. And it, it came because I, I just admitted to a guy um, late one night that uh, I was really interested in directing theatre. And then he came back to me uh, a couple of weeks later and asked me if I remembered what I'd said at two o'clock in the morning. And, and I did. And he said, you know, there's an opportunity here. Do you want to direct a play? So again, massively steep learning curve. Um, but, I, but I learned so much uh, on those shows that I did after, in between my first and second features that I, I changed the way I make films. So I do love working live as well as on film. You've tried quite a few different things and at a point decided that they're not for you or that you haven't got quite the ability that you'd like to show within those careers to pursue them further what at what point do you decide that that isn't for you because I think a lot of people trudge away in a career for a long time and perhaps don't decide that at the right point or at all that's a great question and I, I don't I don't not sure I know the answer I, I I've come to understand I think you know on reflection that I am largely curiosity led and so my I I, I perhaps should have been much more strategic uh, in with my career. And I think that being strategic, you can be extremely focused and successful. Um, I've been much more curiosity led. So if something excited me and, you know, made my heart beat fast, I tended to move towards it. It, it was never very um, premeditated. It was just quite in instinctual. I'm not necessarily recommending it, by the way, 
<laughs> um, but um, but it's been it's been exciting and it's been fun as well as tough at times. It sounds like it's been very exciting. So moving on to pitching, can you tell me about a time when you pitched for funding and it didn't go very well? Well, that would that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. I, these days, people ask me to run workshops and training and 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 classes or whatever it is, events um, on pitching or or what I like to call it on on uh, ways that we can talk about our work. Uh, it's it's not always like a you know pitch like a kind of a big performance thing. But for you know certainly the early stages of my career when I was uh, you know you you'd get set up to go to these meetings I was terrible uh, I mean I was just I was just I was just useless and I could see I could see from the impact that uh, I, you know in the room people's faces I was confusing people and and you know most people are kind of nice but they'd go well that's really kind of interesting David you know yeah you might want to yeah, you know, well, do keep us in the loop, you know, and you're just, you're dying. You're just dying there. Um, and, but when you say like an instance of of when it didn't go well, the reality is for filmmakers, and I would say, you know, and, and film and television makers and artists in general is we hear no much more often than we hear yes. And, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We may go in and feel as though we are being auditioned and our work is being auditioned. But when we can move into a headspace where we realize that actually this is just a meeting and we're finding out about each other, we're sharing information about our work and about ourselves, and we're finding out things uh, in the room, hopefully, um, about the people that we're meeting with. And this is about finding common ground. It's about finding, you know, this is what we all generally speaking need to do is find people to work with, find people that we get on with and we, whose company we enjoy or that we're, we think it'll be exciting to work with and we can help each other. And I think of it more that way than being auditioned. So that has changed quite fundamentally. But to your question, um, you know, I've, I've fallen flat on my face in pitches so much more often than I have uh, succeeded. But I did notice at a certain point that I was having more success. And I asked myself, so what's changed? And what had changed was my ability to be clear and memorable. And also, I think to emotionally affect the people in the room. I think that made a big difference. How do you go about distilling themes, complex themes into concise statements that resonate with producers and executives? Finding the theme of our work uh, I think is is really helpful. And it tends not to necessarily be extremely obvious to us. Sometimes it is, 
I did an adaptation of a book um, once uh, on a film that I, I made uh, with Jared Leto and Christina Ricci uh, and Gabriel Byrne. And uh, it was very clear to me when I read this novel that it was a story about a family. Uh, and uh, and although it, it appeared to be a coming of age story, what it was really about was it didn't matter how dysfunctional a family was as long as there was enough love to go around. And that that was very clear to me as, as a sort of thematic subject. So when I was doing the adaptation, I was able to um, keep returning to that on a sort of daily basis and, and measure my choices against that theme. I would literally ask myself, does this choice, if, if I write this or if we make this decision with the project, does it help us express the theme or does it help us explore the theme? Or is it kind of parallel to it or moving away from it? And if it was parallel or moving away from it, I usually came up with another idea. And if it was helping to explore the theme, then I took it seriously. So asking questions like, what is it that moves me about this? What, what is it that I'm trying to say to the audience? What is it that I think is really uh, exciting to explore? These sorts of questions help you to unravel your theme. Or themes. When pitching to investors who may not be familiar with the filmmaking process, as producers are, how do you suggest filmmakers adapt their pitch to emphasize the business potential of their project? I always think of the people that we're meeting with or pitching to or uh, discussing a project with, um, I always think of them as an element in my pitch. The people who are listening are an element in, in my pitch. I think it really helps to be clear about what it is that you want from the pitch. Some investors are interested in getting their money back and making a profit. And that seems pretty obvious, right? Um, you know, maybe, for example, if they work for an investment company, if they don't get the money back and they don't really make a profit or if they lose money, then maybe their job is in jeopardy. So maybe there's something personal for them in this. Other sorts of investors see investment in uh, the arts, in film and television as being something that they do, which is not so return driven. I mean, they'd like, they would like to get their money back, but it seems like something exciting to be involved in. And maybe for them, what's more important is looking over your shoulder at what you're doing. I mean, just enjoying the process vicariously. Maybe it's going to be visiting the set. Maybe it's going to be having tickets and seats at an opening or going along to a film festival to a screening. Um, being able to open the paper and see a great review and be, and, and be able to say to their their, their colleagues, look, you know, we, we did this, we, we, we invested here. So like bragging rights, uh, which is a pretty unpleasant um, expression, but, but you know what I mean? The ability to, to say, look, look, we did this, I did this. So in short, understanding what it is that you want from the meeting and, or from the pitch and understanding what it is that they want, because 
it's not necessarily they want to make money out of you. That's, you know, there, there are situations that where, where that is the case. But generally speaking, those are professional film investors and they already know the industry. So finding that intersection between what they want and what you want is really useful. Investors who are professional, who work within the film industry, who uh, help to finance films, are uh, come in lots of different types. Um, so one would be a distributor, for example, uh, and distributors very often specialize in certain sorts of films. So they have knowledge in, in distributing and selling certain sorts of films, maybe at certain um, certain genres or certain budget levels or certain types of cast lineup. Uh, and that's what they're good at. That's what they understand. Now, of course, those people sometimes will step outside that particular um, field that they specialize in, and that's great. But very often um, they're looking, they're looking to for for projects that they know they can make work because they have that expertise. Um, so I would say that those that those sorts of investors are would be distributors, um, sales agents. Um, in the case perhaps of an executive producer who uh, makes their money by piecing finance packages together, I think very often they are probably thinking on a couple of different levels. One is they're probably looking for something that they personally respond to, that excites them. Because like you are pitching to them, if, if you all start to work together, they will be pitching your project at times and you won't be there. They'll be going and talking to their contacts, their people, their investors, and they will be running your project by them or bigging up your project or selling your project to them without you even present. You may be invited some of the time. You may be part of that some of the time. But there will be times that they'll be talking about you and your work and you won't be in the room. So their, their personal response to you and your project is really key because most smart people in that situation know that what they sell best is stuff that they really care about and they really want to make and they're prepared to spend the <laughs> the months and often years uh, involved in getting a project set up now the other thing that a professional executive producer financier uh, will be thinking about very likely when they hear your pitch is what are their investors and buyers interested in getting involved in? So for instance, if you pitch um, a romantic comedy, they may immediately be going, oh, these are really good parts. We could really cast this up. We could probably make this project for a middle-sized budget rather than the low budget that this filmmaker is thinking of. And I could probably 
run this project by this company and this person and this buyer and this end user. And they're literally kind of thinking through their address book, their contacts. So that's something that will be going on when, uh, you know, really sort of in the back of their minds as you are pitching to them. So again, this comes back to when you are pitching, it's really useful to either have a sense in advance or figure out while you're doing it, what is it that this listener, this financier, this executive producer wants? What is it that they are looking for? What is it that will motivate them? Because honestly, there are people out there who really just want to be invited to a premiere. They want to meet the cast. You know, that, that, that may not be that common and they may not be, um, but there are high, you know, there are high net worth individuals who invest in, in film and television. And that, that, that's really what the emotional draw for them. Now, they probably don't want to lose their money, but they really care. They're, they're thinking about the red carpet. Other investors care not remotely about red carpets or even sometimes reviews or, 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 or festival awards. What they care about is sales. So investors and buyers and producers and execs come in lots of different shapes and forms, but most importantly, with lots of different motivations and objectives. And being able to understand those is really going to help you pitch know who you're selling to so uh for private investors where do you find them and how do you approach them for first contact for private investors um i believe there are executive producers who specialize in this kind of thing maybe these uh eis or uh schemes or other similar uh tax schemes um Sometimes uh, there are um, consultancy firms like the big accountancy uh, firms, sometimes the big law firms that have a media division. They have clients who are looking uh, to invest in media, perhaps for tax reasons or perhaps for creative reasons. So um, if I was looking for a private investor, I would probably go to um, big accountancy firms, big law firms that have media uh, divisions and who have clients that might be interested in this area. Apart from that, uh, I don't I, I don't know what people do. Uh, most of the films that I've made or have been involved in, um, even at a distance, have had um, you know professional industry investment. And I think that's probably a bit more common. How do you respond to feedback when you get it from wherever you get it from? Professionals uh, in the industry or family? How do you approach feedback? Well, my approach to feedback is um, if somebody gives me, tells me uh, the work is really fantastic, uh, I assume they're really smart. And if the feedback's appalling, uh, and um, they're full of, um, or even slight, you know, if it's if it's really good, but they're got, they're kind of going, um, but you could do this better, and that could be better, and this could be better. I just assume they're really stupid. 
<laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I think most of us have that person that I just described um, somewhere within us. However, I think the more we're able to park our ego and the more we're able to think about what do we ultimately want, the more we're able to hear feedback and let it be useful to us. And what I mean by useful is help us to improve a script or a cut or a pitch. And that is being able to perhaps hear criticism. And it, sometimes it's it's things that we, we are is uncomfortable. Things are said that are uncomfortable or that we may not understand. And our instinct may be to discount them. But what I would say is this, if you hear a note, a script note or an observation on your work or on your pitch, and you hear it from more than one person, they may not be correct about their analysis, even if two people offer the same analysis. But if two people offer, if two people point towards an area or a thing that you're doing, uh, which isn't working for them, their analysis may not be correct, but it's pretty reliable to say that there is an issue here that you should pay attention to. So I, I learned from a really fantastic uh, editor, Ray Lovejoy, years ago, that when somebody came in the, in the room and watched a cut and, uh, and, and looked at a scene and said, oh, that's too long. He didn't hear that necessarily as that's too long. What he heard was there may be a length or a pace issue here. <laughs> so he go, he would go, okay, well, let's try it shorter. If they say it's too long, let's try it shorter. But if, that's, but if they say it's too long, let's try it even longer. So that you don't necessarily have to take the, the, the fine detail of people's feedback or notes too hard. Although if they ring true with you, great, you know, do something about that. But essentially, people may just be giving you a heads up on their level of engagement, or what's working for them. And, you know, if so, so if you can park your ego and not take this stuff personally, feedback is an opportunity to make your work better. And it's really as simple as that. By the way, when you're giving feedback, you might just want to start with observations about what you noticed. I observed this, I saw this, I heard this. And if you feel it's really important to say that I liked it or I didn't like it, maybe you might want to say that later in your feedback so that you leave your ego aside when you're giving notes or feedback or help. So that's kind of my general <laughs> view on feedback that was good I really liked that answer that was good but you know I think we do all have that person inside us that goes well you know if you think I'm great and you think my work is great you are clearly a genius 
And if you're critical, you're clearly a moron. But I think we have to, <laughs> that, that person inside us, that one that I just referenced, I think we have to try and park that person and move them aside. Yeah, there's not much point in asking then, is there, if you're going to have that response? No, if you're just look, looking for kind of, you know, confirmation bias or, you know, you're just looking for people to kind of big you up and tell you you're great, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going to help you. And let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about log lines. Um, I know when I saw you at BAFTA, you said that not everyone needs a log line in their pitch, um, which I'm sure will let will allow a lot of people to take a breath for a moment because this is quite controversial. And a lot of people say you need a log line, you must have a log line, otherwise you don't have a script. And yeah, so log lines. Well, again, you know, clearly, if you can't come up with a brilliant log line for your project, there is a problem with your project and there's a problem with you. And please give up filmmaking immediately. <laughs> is the general drift sometimes we get, which is that log lines, you know, everybody's got to have a log line. I mean, you know, it's like the guy who in 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 the he was um he was the head of acquisitions for a um a big a US distributor. And when he saw my face fall when I was asked for the one line on my project, he said, Well, if you can't express it in one line, what are they going to put in the TV listings? And you know, that that shocked me at the time. So my take on log lines is 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 pretty specific, but um it's also uh, there are parameters. So I really believe in using log lines if you have a fantastic log line. But if I haven't come up with a great log line or even a good log line, I do not offer up a log line. And if somebody asks me, so what's the log line for this? And I haven't got a good one. I will say, hmm, yes, um, I haven't got one yet. Any ideas, any suggestions? Now, that works um, pretty well, except when you're doing one of those online applications for funding that certain arts councils do. And you know, there's a window and it says, log lines, 25 words or less. Uh, or something like that. And basically, you know, unless you type something in there, uh, you don't get, you know, you know, you don't get to press next, you know, you're stuck until you put something in there. And, you know, in that instance, you've got to put something in there. And I, you know, don't suggest you put in something about quick foxes jumping over lazy dogs or whatever, because, you know, it's just not going to help. So you're going to have to express um, something about your piece uh, in one short sentence in that instance. And we do the best we can. But I resist rules in general. Um, and specifically, I resist rules that say a pitch is not a pitch without a log line. Um, because honestly, a pitch... Why, why do we even think pitching matters? Why is pitching important? Why is it important to be great at pitching? I mean, if I was to say to you, Amber, I've got a trophy here for the best pitcher, you know, of the, of the show, of the year. It's a beautiful trophy and there's a fantastic red rosette for you. You can be, you know, champion pitcher. 
Um, or I said to you over here, uh, over on this side, you can do a pretty mediocre pitch, but you know, it's enough to get you your financing. Which would you go for? Me, I'd go for the financing. Mm. So to be honest, how good does your pitch have to be? Your pitch has to be good enough to get the result that you're looking for. And very often the result that we're looking for is to move our project forward. Yes, of course, it would be fantastic if we pitched, uh, if we go out to pitch the very first time and we pitch a project, it takes us 15 minutes and they hand us over a big sack of cash. That would be great. But realistically, very often we go to pitch to meet people, to find other people to work with, um, to find companies that might be interested. And if somebody offers us another meeting, we'll be happy. So I would just say that a pitch has to be good enough to move your project forward and or to get the result that you're looking for. And we have to pitch many, many more times and talk about our work and ourselves many, many more times uh, than we get to hear, yes, fantastic, we're doing this. Uh, and that should we should be okay with that. We should be okay with no. Um, how do you pre prepare before a pitch? Is there anything you do, like listening to music to kind of hype yourself up or anything like that? You just well, make sure you've got your ducks in a row. When I work with people on their pitches, um, very often we are working towards a particular morning or afternoon when um, they or we are going to have to walk into a building and put on a show. And that's something that we do. But that's not all that we do. We also meet people for coffee to talk about a project. We also bump into people in a bar at a festival and find ourselves talking about our work. Uh, there is the proverbial elevator pitch that, you know, we just run into somebody, um, you know, uh, on a bus from the airport or going down a lift or whatever it is. And they say to us, so what are you working on? And you take a lung full of air and you say something and hopefully, uh, if this is somebody that uh, can help you or can help move your project forward, they say something back, which is going to be helpful, which might be, oh, that sounds interesting. Would you, would you drop me an email about that? Or would you give me a call? Here's my number. Would you, would you set up a meeting when we're both back in, in town? And, and if that happens, that, that, that lung full of air was, was well-spoken when you got to talk, you know, and you may have just said a couple of short things. So when it comes to preparation, I think that it's really important, of course, to, prep to prepare for that Thursday afternoon or whatever it is that when you have to, you or maybe you're, you're working with some other people have to get in your feet and present your, your work, present your project. Um, but also, I think it's really important to prepare for those casual interactions and those extremely brief interactions. So we're able to say something about the work and about ourselves which produces a positive result. Now, specifically, I encourage people to prepare more things to say, more things to show, more things to share than they are likely to do in any one meeting or any one interaction.
So in a sense, we prep up a broader canvas. And then what we share at the time is guided by the curiosity and the engagement of the people that we're pitching to. So there is an element of fluidity and adaptability and that we're able to pivot when we're in a meeting. That's also to do with my own preference. Um, I don't like to listen to pitches that just feel like it's the same old show that's happening kind of, you know, every afternoon this week in offices all over the city that I happen to just be the pair of ears on the Thursday afternoon when I'm listening to pitches. I love it to feel as though this is specific to this afternoon, this moment, this office, this interaction, because this is a this is a human thing we're doing. It's essentially a conversation, even though it feels a bit more like, you know, a short play or an after dinner speech. But I would encourage people to move away from the after dinner speech approach to pitching. And to do that, what we can do is prep up more elements and more things to say and show and share than we will necessarily use in the moment when we're doing it. Now, in terms of personal preparation, most of us suffer from nerves and anxiety and kind of, you know, pre-show panics uh, before we do a big pitch. It's really, really common. And certainly, you know, <laughs> this has happened to me in certainly in pitching in, 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 in California where uh, I would be in my rental car drying my hands in the air conditioning because I would just have a terrible, I'd be sort of drenched in sweat before I go into the building and it never worked. <laughs> um, but um, people uh, can really benefit from um, breathing practices for relaxation, um, meditation, yoga, Qigong, uh, going for walks, anything that relaxes you and anything that helps you go through your notes in your head so that you are ready to talk freely and conversationally with people. And um, that's, that's how I prepare and that's how I encourage other people to prepare. But it's very much up to the individual and what makes them feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah, I like that. It's a really good idea to have not just a confined speech kind of prepared, but look at it like you have a rich tapestry to draw from, like you're really comfortable talking about yourself and your work and to be flexible talking about it. That's going to give you confidence. I think the flexibility is really key for me. And I really do think that it helps with confidence. So that irrespective of where the conversation goes, you're ready, you're prepared. Also, I encourage people to prepare using the question, what can I say less? What can I show less? Because I think we run a much greater risk saying and showing too much uh, than saying and showing too little. Because in my experience, if I don't if I don't give a key piece of information in a pitch, or if uh, maybe it's not even a key piece of information, if I don't say something that, if somebody has a, has a question in their mind about the work or about me, and I haven't answered it 
in what I said, they're just going to ask me the question. And then I'm going to answer it. And guess what? They ask me a question, I answer it. Maybe I ask them a question. We're having a conversation now. This is human. It's not just a show that's on rails that starts with this slide and ends with this sizzle reel. And thank you for listening at the end. Um, because I think for me, those really do feel a little bit too much like an after dinner speech. Mm. Mm. You've built a rapport then, haven't you? Once you've got a conversation going. I think the rapport is really key because uh, they want to know when we walk in the room to pitch uh, or for a meeting, they want to know uh, what the project is, what it's like, what it could mean for them. They want to know about us. They want to know about why we want to make it, what we're passionate about, what we're like uh, as people. They want to get a sense of how we're going to be to work with. But wait, we want to know what they're like. We want to know what they can bring to the project. We want to get a sense of what their good could be like to work with, or going to be, or could be like. So if they're auditioning us, if, the, if that's really what's going on here on some level, well, we're auditioning them also. This is about getting to know people and getting to see how they respond to the project. Because if they seem disinterested or bored by what we have to say, if we're not connecting with them, I mean, if, even if they do make us an offer, do we really want to work with them? Are they going to be great people to be involved with for possibly years? Maybe not. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. It's very important who you work with. It's really all about um, finding people who all want to pull together in the same direction, whether they're, you know, producers or actors or financiers or, or um uh, distributors, um, buyers, end users. You know, we've all got to be excited about the same thing. Otherwise, it's just too hard. Perfect. I think that's an excellent note to end on as well. So we have used our entire hour here, which is a shame. Um, oh. You've been excellent, and I've really enjoyed this discussion. Um, I think it's been really valuable. And I hope it's given everyone a really good idea of what pitching is and that it's not just a confined speech in a room, but it's a way of talking about your work and getting used to talking about your work and feeling at ease about it and having a tapestry to draw from and being flexible in different situations. So thank you very much, David. Appreciate it. It's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much for, for having me here. And uh, it's been really fun speaking with you, Amber. Thanks a lot. Thank you. If you're enjoying this content and you're finding it valuable, please subscribe to our Patreon page. Without your contribution, the podcast will come to an end. You can find the link through our website, Productions forward slash podcast, or our Instagram page, Film Finance Podcast, and follow the link in the bio. Thanks for listening.